of all of our hearts. Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning we finish up this four-week series that we've been going through called We Want a King, a series on faith and politics and how scriptures answer the polarization and the deep division that we see and that we feel in our country, in our family, in our lives. We began the series by talking about the word unprecedented, how that's been like the word of 2020, unprecedented, everything's unprecedented. But really the division and confusion and difficulty that we feel is not unprecedented. We see this division and, and acrimony and polarity at numerous times in different stages of, the, of church history and certainly in scripture. We've been studying a, a, a time in Israel's history called the divided kingdom. Obviously there's precedence for this, right? And one of my guiding principles, if you've been here all four weeks, I, it's great to see so many of your faces. I know many of you have been tracking throughout these weeks. One of the guiding principles is something you might be able to say by heart right now, and that is if there is biblical precedence for what we're experiencing, there is also biblical wisdom. There's also biblical wisdom for us. So we spent two, the first two weeks identifying two hallmarks of the divided kingdom. First, divided kingdoms reject God and place their hope in earthly leaders. Second, they replace God with idols and leaders who become idols and then lead them into more and more idolatry. Anything that's an unworthy object of worship is idolatry. And then last week, we sort of turned the corner and said, how do we begin to combat this division? And we talked last week about combating division through repentance by looking at King Josiah. In the midst of this, I, I, I had someone come and ask me, now, why didn't you preach on politics during the month of October? This is a little strange that you chose November to do this, right? Wouldn't you preach in October on politics leading up to the election? And I explained to them that I viewed this series for a long time, planning and preparing the same way that I think about premarital counseling. Um, I always tell the couples that I'm working with in premarital counseling that I wish that we did that differently. I wish we structured that in a different way. I wish that whatever couple I'm meeting with, that I would meet with them maybe once or twice before the wedding, and then we would meet like every month in their first year of marriage, right? Why is that? It's because that's when you really need the counseling and the guidance and the tough love and the wisdom after the wedding, when you realize what you're actually trying to live into here. And I think the election is kind of much the same for us. For anyone who consciously or unconsciously thought that they would wake up on that Wednesday morning and that all the division and difficulty in our families and our society would just sort of go away, you realize by now that that is simply not the case. We have to live into this reality of a divided country. How do we combat that division? How are we supposed to respond? What are we supposed to do? Well, one thing I know is that we have to respond differently to the culture around us because that is clearly not working. And it's turning increasingly hateful and violent. So to that end, division might not be unprecedented, but you know what is? Gun ownership. Uh, this is from New York Times Daily Podcast. I don't know if you're aware of this, but gun and ammunition sales are literally at an all-time high right now. Um, in 2020, background checks for handguns alone are up 80% over last year. And for those of you who like to break down stereotypes and, and enjoy doing that like I do, it's both on the right and on the left. A recent uh, political article researched these new gun owners and found an increasing number of Americans, both Democrats and Republicans, 
who say they think violence would be justified if their side loses the upcoming election. A growing acceptance of the possibility of violence is actually a bipartisan phenomenon right now. And it's not just extremists who are considering violence or, or justifying it. One survey found that among uh, Americans, both Democrats and Republicans, one in three now believe that violence is justified to advance their party's particular goal, which is a substantial increase over the same question asked three years ago. Get your brain around that. One in three. One in three. And Christians are not exempt here. Far from it. If history teaches us anything, it's that when people, even those who claim to follow Jesus, perceive a threat to their body or their soul or their society or their comforts or, or their party, they will often resort to violence to, or follow a violent leader rather than following Jesus and his way of, as John Mark Comer calls it, self-sacrificial, nonviolent enemy love. So violence is not new. What's new is this combination in America of the extreme level of polarization between right and left, old and young, urban and rural, coast and middle America, and the willingness to resort to violence if needed. Meaning that our nation is very divided right now, probably as divided as we've been since the Civil War. Another survey from a group of political scientists found that 60% of voters think members of the other party constitute an existential threat more than 40% would call those people evil, and 20% think that they are animals. Another academic study found that, quote, hostility to the opposition party and its candidates is at a level where loathing motivates voters more than loyalty does. Most sociologists argue that this sort of turn towards violent acceptance, this polarization has been on the rise since the 90s particularly in the transition from Clinton to Bush and then fractured even more between President Obama and President Trump. And make no mistake, COVID-19 has accelerated the polarization to a whole new level. I, I've heard it said that this is not a political virus. It is because we politicize it, right? All of this leads us to tribalism. Our tendency to sort ourselves into a group of like-minded individuals, echo chambers that confirm what we believe and think and feel, or what Harvard sociologist Robert Bella called the narcissism of similarities. All of this to say, our nation is very divided, to the point where an increasing number of people are ready and willing to take up arms. This reality, in my opinion, I don't think it's a stretch to go on a limb here and say that this is based in fear, right? People are scared. And, and, and when people are threatened, they tend to resort to violence. We've all lived in this grand experiment called secularism. Most of us, for most of our lives, have where, where we want the benefits of the kingdom of God, but we don't really want to follow the King Jesus. And, and people are freaking out because their dream of this utopia, that bubble, is bursting. They're realizing that democracy has not solved the problems. Their favorite candidate has not solved all the problems. So we tend to make enemies along political lines and blame them instead of blaming ourselves or the collective us. But what I want to say this morning is we should not settle for that reality. That's not good enough for me, right? Michael Weir, one of the authors of Compassion and Conviction, which I know a number of you have been going through in, in our political class that we went through this fall, said it this way after the election. One thing I am sure of after this election, for the sake of society, we cannot continue to operate as if half the country does not exist. 
So the question before us in the coming weeks and months and years is how do we call ourselves followers of Jesus and stay together in a time of division? How do we stay faithful to Jesus in this divided kingdom that we are living in? And not only how do we stay together and stay at peace and stay faithful to the way of Jesus, but how do we go beyond that, that peacekeeping and move into peacemaking? Two very different things there, right? How can we transcend the status quo and actually reconcile a nation that wants to pretend that half the nation does not or tragically should not exist? How do we do that? Well, the study of the kings of the united and divided kingdoms of Israel ultimately leads us to Jesus, thank goodness, right? The first way to combat division that we talked about last week was repentance, as modeled by the good king Josiah. And the goodness of Josiah actually preserved the people of God. I had someone point this out to me, which was important. That, that once Josiah had gone, the procession of bad kings continues, and, God, and it gets so bad that God doesn't have any other, other avenue than to allow the consequence of exile to come across the people of Israel. And certainly we need to be mindful of the consequences of godlessness and division in our own country and where that will ultimately lead us. But the solution is ultimately found both now and in Scripture in Jesus. So this week, we look to the only true good king whose name is Jesus. And we end this series saying this. This is the last kind of point. We combat division when we replicate Christ's character. We combat division when we replicate Christ's character. And there are a few more appropriate texts for us to examine the character of Christ in the midst of division than Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. So would you please stand for our scripture reading this morning? It's from John 18. I'll read it nice and slow because it's such an incredible passage. Hear God's word for us this morning. Then the Jews took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat at the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man, Jesus? And they answered, If this man were not a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him then according to your own law. And the Jews replied, But we're not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death that he would die. And then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or do others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I'm, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests have handed you over to me, so what have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Then Pilate asked him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king? For this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. 
Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate asked him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release for you this king of the Jews? And they shouted in reply, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a bandit. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So Jesus has been up all night. He's been imprisoned illegally by the Jewish ruling class. And now he's brought before the Roman ruler Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Um, There's so much to get into this text. I actually have a really tough time in both services this morning reading it because I want to stop like every few words and, and give you more context here. And I'm really sorry that we don't have more that we can't just do a whole sermon series on this right now. Maybe we need to do that in the near future because Jesus' answers to Pilate are just unbelievable. <laughs> and, and the more that you study them, they just get richer and richer, and you fall more and more in love with who Jesus is. Incredible, incredible, mind-blowing stuff the more that you parse it out. But I need to stay on topic this morning. So Pilate doesn't want to try Jesus. He does not want to try him. So he goes back to the Jews and he says, why don't you Jews just judge him as a Jew? And just leave me out of this because I don't really care. That's essentially what he's saying. But they say, we're not permitted to put him to death. Now, you see, the Jews, even under Roman rule, they did have a modicum of legal recourse in their own sort of system, but only to imprison Jesus. That's, That's the most that they could do. Only Rome could execute him, put him to death. So these Jews bringing Jesus to Pilate in the first place are essentially saying, imprisonment is not enough for us. We insist on violence. We insist on death. We cannot just agree to disagree with this guy. That is not a possibility. He needs to go away. He needs to die. Does that sound familiar? Maybe it sounds a bit severe for me to be making that link between the world of Jesus and our world today, but then just let Jesus speak. Let him make his own statement. Because he does that in verse 34 when he's talking with Pilate. Listen to what he says. In, mind of, in light of all this, listen to what Jesus says. My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting. They'd be violent to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. In other words, Jesus is saying that my kingdom does not follow the patterns of the kingdom of this world, which are violent when we're threatened. If I were of this world, me and my followers, they'd be fighting. They'd be, they'd be taking up arms, and we'd be squaring ourselves at Rome and our Roman occupiers, and we would destroy our enemy before they can destroy us. But that's not how Jesus chooses to fight. Verse 37, Jesus says, For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to overthrow Rome. Nope, that's not what he says. To testify to the truth. Jesus did not come as a warrior king. He came as what Comer calls a philosopher king. His battle is not with guns and ammunition. It's with truth. Now, it's notoriously tough to read exactly how Pilate received this Jesus person. You can go back and watch, you know, film adaptations and stuff. Every Pilate is wildly different from the last one. Was he annoyed or was he indifferent or was he deeply moved by Jesus, this supposed king of the Jews, it's impossible to say. But one thing that I'm sure of through their interactions 
Pilate was really struggling with this guy, Jesus, because he could not fit him into the boxes that were available to him. Jesus was a category buster. Pilate had no idea what to do with that. So Pilate here is running out of options. Maybe he's thinking that he can catch the Jews in their own sort of sick game here, and he says, okay, so I have this custom to release a prisoner on the Passover. Totally fascinating, by the way. Wish I could get into that. Should I release Jesus or should I release Barabbas? Quick side note here. It says Barabbas was a bandit in John's gospel in the NRSV. Not a good translation. It should read Barabbas is a revolutionary. He's a revolutionary. He was in prison because he took part in a violent incursion, a violent uprising against Rome. That's why he was in prison in the first place. And something that gets lost uh, from the Greek manuscripts into English because of the early church fathers was, was Barabbas's actual name was Jesus Barabbas. His first name was Jesus. Very common name in the first century. So while it's historically accurate that his name was Jesus Barabbas, it's also a brilliant literary device for John as he's writing here because what is he essentially saying? He's saying, which Jesus do you want? <laughs> do you want the real Jesus? Or do you want a facsimile Jesus that you've sort of fashioned in your own interests? Jesus, the philosopher king who, who comes into the world to do the justice of God that comes through truth? Or Jesus Barabbas, the warrior leader who revolts for the justice that comes from blood? And what do the people do? They reject, they reject Jesus, the king, just as they did Yahweh 3,000 years ago when they came to Samuel and they said, we want a king. We want a king, what did they say 3,000 years earlier? We want a king who will go and fight our battles for us. Give us Jesus Barabbas. Give us violence. So Barabbas goes free. Jesus is sentenced. And he's stripped. And he's beaten. And he's spat upon. And he's crucified. And he's pierced. And he's hung upon a cross until he dies. He does not revolt. He does not choose violence. This is the God that we are called to follow. This is the king that we're called to follow. The same one that people created in his very image have been rejecting from the dawn of time, choosing instead earthly leaders and unworthy idols and all manner of violence to maintain power. But what we know now is that Jesus was fighting, right? He was revolting, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against death itself, which through his resurrection becomes an invitation for us into eternal life with him. Jesus models so perfectly in the pinnacle of, 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 of his character, humble, nonviolent enemy love. One of the fascinating things that you can trace throughout Christian history is that the smartest, wisest, most noble Christian thinkers and theologians and philosophers and ethicists from Augustine to Aquinas to, to, to Merton to Karl Barth to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the brightest minds poke around the same idea that the highest form of Christian maturity is enemy love. Is enemy love. It's not going out into the mission field, as wonderful as that is. It's not writing a big check, as wonderful as that is, or even being a super righteous person. 
It's the ability to practice love for our enemies. This is the pinnacle of Christ-likeness. And part of the reason that it's the pinnacle of Christ-likeness is because it's so, so, so hard to do. But thankfully, Jesus models for us how to replicate his character in the form of enemy love. He gives us a pattern to follow and thereby combat division in our lives, in our families, in our society. So three ways for us to practice this noble aspiration of enemy love from the very life of Jesus. The first is this. Violence must stop with us. Violence must stop with us. Um, As we established earlier, we as a society are more and more comfortable with the idea of violence because we are more and more convinced that the other is the enemy and is a threat to us. In a way, just as I said a couple weeks ago, that we are united both left and right in in our uh, idolatry. We both love idols equally. So we too are united in our disdain for others and for our violence. Jesus' first century world was just as polarized as ours, maybe even more so. Israel had already been colonized at this time by Rome. They were suffering under um, a burdensome tax load and very little freedom. There were multiple groups within first century Israel, kind of sects or group of people. But the two most common ones that we read about in Scripture are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Fascinating to just think about the, the corollaries here. The Pharisees are conservative. They're more rural. They're more small town. On the one hand, they are deeply devoted to God and take scripture incredibly seriously. Uh, On the other hand, we see through Jesus' interactions with them that at least the ones he interacted with, many of them had lost the heart of God's justice for the poor, for the disenfranchised, for those on the margins. And then the Sadducees are the closest thing that we have to progressives in Jesus' world. They were more urban. They were more upper class. They were more cultured. They were more sophisticated. They had a low view of scripture. They were really selective about the parts of the Bible that they accepted and and which ones they didn't accept. Most notably, they did not believe in heaven or angels or demons or, or most importantly, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They were a minority group, but they were in power, particularly over the cultural institutions of Israel, including the temple. They were the overseers of the temple. And they became very rich and very powerful because they were willing to compromise with Rome. Now, I'm not saying that these two groups are a perfect binary for our sort of understanding of right and left, but I think we'd be crazy to not see some of the the correlation there. Know this, these groups hated each other. The Sadducees and the Pharisees hated each other. They were utterly convinced that the other one was the problem and that if they weren't there, things would be fine. They could not get along. But do you know what they had in common, especially in this story that we read? They hated Jesus more than they hated one another, and they worked together beautifully to see to his death. They were united in their violence, both conservative and progressive. I think Jesus made them equally furious, but Jesus never matches their vitriol or their violence He could have. He would have been justified. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But instead, he absorbs their hatred. Their violence literally stops in his body. He does not pass that violence on. 
He refuses to retaliate, to meet violence with violence. If we are following Jesus, we have to commit to arresting violence and hatred and bloodthirst and retaliation and revenge. Those, those things have to stop with us. Otherwise, enemy love is utterly impossible. This is the pattern of Jesus. This is what we're called to. Second thing, partisanship must stop with us. For me, the most deeply resonant part of our text today is that Pilate just could not categorize Jesus. He just couldn't figure out how to put him in a box. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the same. They were enraged at the fact that Jesus did not fit into the categories. And I have to say, if you are seeking to be a follower of Jesus here today, you cannot fit into the categories that our partisan politics provide for us because Jesus didn't fit into them and he wouldn't fit into them today. One of the best ways for us to combat the division that we see is to resist and blur the partisan lines that become lines of demarcation and division for us. Now, I'm not saying that you cannot have affinity for a certain party or identify with a party platform in some way or register with a political party for the purposes of voting. But if you fit too tightly into those boxes, I'm sorry to say, tough word here, everybody, that's lazy discipleship. That's lazy discipleship. Jesus would not fit into our parties. And if we are following him, we can't either. We should be confounding. We should be a conundrum as followers of Jesus. Just think of what Jesus' followers are for, okay? Clearly and obviously from God's word, what are followers of Jesus for? We have to be for the poor. There's absolutely no way around that as followers of Jesus. We are for immigrants and refugees. We are for women and the gifts that God has poured out on them. We are also for religious freedom for everybody. Jesus basically invented religious non-coercive freedom. We are anti-discrimination and pro-dignity, but we are also for the sanctity of human sexuality and God-given parameters around sex and marriage and gender. We are fiercely for the unborn, and we are fiercely for the environment. I'm utterly convinced that if Jesus was walking around, he would look like a tree hugger. Listen to his parables. Because it was a sign of the new creation to come, and it was worth caring deeply for. We are anti-racism, and we are pro-responsibility. We are for guns being beat down into plowshares. And crazily enough, we are pro-authority. Honoring leaders, even when they're not perfect leaders, even when they turn to idols. Now, as followers of Jesus, if you're squirming in your seat, it's okay. As followers of Jesus, we might disagree how we are for those things when it comes to policy. And that's okay. But we need to agree that if Jesus was for these things, we are also for these things. Our sensibilities might lead us to elevate one issue over the other in our hearts, maybe the way that we vote or the way that we are active. And by all means, you ought to operate out of the God-given convictions that God has given to you. But we cannot pick and choose which part of Jesus' convictions we're aligned with. We need to be, for all of what Jesus was for, 
which means that political engagement is not easy. It's hard for followers of Jesus. If you're someone that can be easily put into a category, let me invite you again to the feet of Jesus. Read the Gospels. Learn from him. He said, my kingdom is not from this world, which means that these categories don't work for him. He will confound them, and as followers of Jesus, we live for his kingdom, not for the kingdom of America, not for the kingdom of this world. In the kingdom of God, we do not draw lines that create tribes around issues and ideologies and ethnicities and class and race and whatever else. So th this partisanship that we swim in, this red, blue, conservative, liberal, progressive, fundamentalist, whatever, whatever it is, it needs to die with us. We can't perpetuate it. I pray that every interaction that I might have blows up those categories for people, makes people confounded, because that's a sign that I'm getting closer to practicing the enemy love of Jesus Christ, because we cannot practice enemy love when we are living within and making more prominent the lines that create us and them in the first place. Obviously, you can hear my voice. I could go on for a while about this. But um, third point, contempt must stop with us. Some of you might be sitting going, okay, you're talking a lot about violence. I'm not a violent person. I think you know that violence doesn't start with a gun, right? It starts with hate in someone's mind and heart, in the formation of someone as my enemy, and then the creation of words that confirm that enemy status. This is what we call contempt. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses this beautifully in Matthew 5. You've heard it was said of those ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you say to a brother or a sister, Raka, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. What Jesus is saying here is that anger towards another person, what we call contempt, is the root of so many of our problems, and I think it's the root of so much of our division. That's where bitterness takes root. Now, there are different kinds of anger. There's the righteous anger that we read about in the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus exhibits some anger in his life, though I want to caution you against using the narrative of the overturning of the tables in the temple to justify your public actions of anger. You're almost certainly wrong about your interpretation of Scripture if that's how it's coming out. The anger here in the Sermon on the Mount is the anger of contempt. What is raka? Raka is an Aramaic word that means idiot or stupid. It's a word that replaces somebody's personhood with a missive. John Tyson, in that brilliant book that I've been recommending to you throughout this series, Beautiful Resistance, says that contempt is when you take one part of a person and you make it the whole part of a person so that you can casually dismiss their value and elevate your own value. So when we use the word idiot, or leftist, or racist, or Marxist, or Trumpian, or fill in the blank, what you're doing is you're giving in to the sweet temptation of contempt that has no place in the life of a child of God and requires deep repentance. Jesus did not show contempt for Pilate. 
or the Sadducees or the Pharisees. In fact, Jesus never called them contemptuous names. Even the times when he addresses the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs or brood of vipers, that's actually a complicated like sobriquet of, of, of allu- biblical allusions and, and agricultural imagery. and different. That's actually more of a parable than it is name-calling. Jesus never gives in to contemptuous name-calling. He never allows contempt to take hold of his heart and his words. And one of the very most mature ways that we can follow Jesus is to banish contempt from our lives. You cannot be replicating the enemy love of Jesus and be snide, sarcastic, bitter, cynical with our words or our actions. And let me tell you, both the right and the left are abominable at this. In fact, they celebrate it. We, we, We will never combat division if contempt is allowed and celebrated. Dare I say, we will never truly follow Jesus so long as contempt is allowed to exist. It must be destroyed. It has to stop with us, followers of Jesus. So, what's the answer to the division? It's Jesus as king. Because he's the king who models not violence, but enemy love. He's the reconciler. At the end of that, that part of the Sermon on the Mount, that teaching of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus sums this up so perfectly. Just, just let these words wash over you. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, hate your enemy is not in the Old Testament. You've heard it was said, and that's not what Scripture says. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, the worst of the worst, do the same. And if you greet only your own people, what more are you doing than other people? Don't even the pagans, the godless people, don't even know God? Don't they even do this? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Don't get too hung up on that word perfect. Not a great translation for us English readers. The word is telos here, and the best way to, tra- to, to translate that and capture what that word is trying to say, particularly in this context, is to say, be mature as your heavenly Father is mature. What did we say the highest level of maturity is in the spiritual journey according to many, many, many of the greatest thinkers that God has ever gifted us with? It's enemy love. It's enemy love. You want to know how closely you're following Jesus? Look at the way that you treat and talk about and think about your enemy. We live in a divided kingdom. Some of us are existing in divided families. But this kingdom, America, this world, was never meant to be the place of our primary citizenship. It is not where our identity is meant to come from. No, dear friends, do not fall captive to ideologies and parties and leaders and loyalties of this world, which one day are going to fade. Hope instead in Jesus, the only object worth hoping in. And then display that hope in the way that you love others. Love the enemy. Love those that oppose you. This is the way of Jesus. 
the one who took division and sin and contempt and violence, all that the world had to offer in his very body and did not replicate it. What did he do instead? He produced life and beauty and honor and goodness. As the author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat on the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners, so that you might not grow weary and lose heart. My friends, Let's live out of our convictions. Let us not grow weary. Let us not lose heart. And let us say today that, yes, we want a king. And that king's name is Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? I've got a responsive prayer for us before we sing. As we close this series on Christ the King Sunday. Pretty great how that worked out, right? Let's join in this prayer together. As followers of Jesus Christ living in this world, which some seek to control and others view with despair, we declare with joy and trust our world belongs to God. From the beginning, through all the crises of our times, until the kingdom fully come, God keeps his covenant forever. Our world belongs to God. God is king. Let earth be glad. Christ is victor. His rule has begun. The spirit is at work. Creation is renewed. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Jesus ascended in triumph, raising our humanity to the heavenly throne. All authority, glory, and sovereign power are given to him. There he hears our prayers and pleads our cause before the Father. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our hope for a new creation is not tied to what humans can do. For we believe that one day every challenge to God's rule will be crushed. His kingdom will fully come and the Lord will rule. So we say, come Lord Jesus.